0: Chapter one, okay. Have you ever wondered if God has forgotten you? God has forgotten you. All right, what types of things do you think cause people to wonder if God has forgotten them? What do you think someone goes through that makes them wonder that, Joseph? When times of suffering.
1: Like something bad
0: yeah. happens. To them. It's usually when something bad happens, right? When when times are hard. And you feel like, where are you, God? You know, why aren't you there? Things aren't going the way that I think they should be going. Well, we're going to look at the beginning of Exodus today, chapter 1. And um, I think as we read it, we'll see that this is a scenario where the uh, Israelites would have been wondering, has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten uh, to take care of us? So let's go ahead, let's read it, and then... So, Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. Who's missing? Joseph, right? Why isn't he listed? He was already there, right? He was already there, okay? All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, uh, Shifra and the other, Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter well, as we kind of kick off the book, um, how do things look in Egypt for the Israelites? How's it look? Not great. Probably wouldn't want to be in their shoes, right? Um, who are the major characters that we've seen so far? Okay, so we have Pharaoh. They haven't even named Pharaoh as Pharaoh. They just call him the king of Egypt, right? I right, so we got the king of Egypt, yeah got these midwives right who are hebrew midwives so they're among the israelites who else is the other kind of big group the israelites. The israelites right <laughs> so we've got the israelites we've got pharaoh and we've got these midwives who do we not have so far who's missing from the story so far moses, moses isn't there yet yeah not born yet anyone else Seem to be missing that we haven't said her name. Aaron's not there yet. Yeah, that's another big one. He'll be very big in the Book of Exodus. Well, what about God? Where's God? Okay, so God has not been mentioned in all of chapter one. Well, um, even though God has not been mentioned, there seems to be a theme developing, and that theme is what we're going to talk about in just a minute here.
1: Midnight.
0: Yes.
2: God is gotcha. Oh. Exactly.
0: Where, wait, what verse is it? Oh, yeah, God dealt <clears throat> My bad.
2: 21.
0: There we go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You guys passed the test. Good job. <laughs> well, um, get my train of thought back here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, I'm glad you said that. That's great. Yeah, God is definitely... Recording <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah, still recording. <laughs> um, so what we're going to do here is we're going to actually take a minute to refresh our memories of what happened back in Genesis, okay? You, you guys remember the series we did in Genesis? We did it uh, two summers ago, I think. We called it Getting to Know God, and we, we kind of went through all these different people as they interacted with God through the book of Genesis. And I'm going to explain in just a minute why Genesis is so important for us to understand this passage. But we're going to watch one of our Bible Project videos real quick here, and that'll get us kind of wrapping our head
1: around Genesis. And it ends the Tower of Babel where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story in the middle? Well, after the scattering of Babel, there's this genealogy. And it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abraham. You probably know him as Abraham. And God starts making all these promises to Abraham. Like he's going to bless him and give him a ton of kids. And he says that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth are now going to find God's blessing. So basically, God is trying to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden and to his original intentions for the world. So it's like his rescue plan for humanity that's why the whole second half of Genesis is about this one family. And so you have, you have Abraham, and then he has a son Isaac, who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And each generation, God renews his promise to bless them and all nations through them. So because of this promise to use this family to rescue the world, it's pretty easy to read these stories as examples of how to be a good person. But
2: actually, for the most part, this family is totally dysfunctional. So for example, let's go back to Abraham. This whole story is about God
1: giving him, and his wife Sarah, a family. But two different times, he basically gives Sarah away to other men by denying that she's even his wife. And then Sarah gets impatient about having a son, so she makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then causes all of these other problems in the family. So they get really old. And you begin to think, that there's no way they're going to have a kid of their own. But then, miraculously, they do. It's Isaac. And Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And it seems like things are going pretty good. But Jacob, the younger brother, wants the family's inheritance, which belongs to Esau, the older brother. So he devises a plan where he's going to steal it from his father, Isaac, who, at this point in the story, is now old and blind. But who does a horrible stealing Yeah, and he just takes off. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him this special technicolor dream coat. And his brothers, because of this, come to hate him. So much so that they plan on killing him. But no, they instead just sell him as a slave down in Egypt. Now, while would Egypt do this crazy series of events? Joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there. And so later on, the the whole Middle East falls into this food shortage. And Joseph's brothers, they come down to Egypt looking for food. And then when they get there, who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph, that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving and so here you have it. These are the great-grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother, but God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil, but God planned it for good, to save people's lives. Now and before
2: they conclude the book, because they actually summarize the message of the whole story so far, Humans keep choosing evil,
1: and we are thinking they're, they're screwing up God's plan, but he keeps turning their evil back into good. And somehow, he's going to use this family to restore humanity back to the garden. So that's the book of Genesis. But we still don't know how exactly he's going to use his family to bring us back to the garden. Well, yeah, but this is just the first book. So that's what the rest of the Bible sets out to answer.
0: helps us to wrap our mind around where we've been in Genesis. Um, And so what's interesting about Exodus is that Exodus really isn't supposed to be seen as like this second book, like a new story, something new that's happening. It's just the next page of the story. In fact, Exodus, the first word in Hebrew, is the word and. Okay, so if you finish Genesis, you read, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. It just keeps going, right, where it left off. Okay, so we should see Exodus as a continuation of the story of Genesis. And as a continuation of the story, we should expect that the things we see starting in Genesis— to continue through the book of Exodus. And there's one thing that I want us to look at as a strong theme throughout these books, and it is this theme of being fruitful and multiplying. Have we heard that phrase before? Yeah, we've definitely heard that phrase before. So let's go through a number of the places that phrase occurs in the book of Genesis. So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 at the very beginning, you see that this is said to all humanity. It said that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is all part of God's original plan. His plan is for humanity to be fruitful and multiply and flourish. Well, we know that there's sin and they um, have kicked out of the garden, but this idea of being fruitful and multiplying, it continues And the next time we see it is when God says it to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. There God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is what he says right off the ark. Okay, so God's just wiped out humanity, starting over with Noah, and the promise remains. Go, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Sorry, not the promise, the command. The command to be fruitful and multiply. Well, to Abraham then this idea of being fruitful and multiplying becomes a promise okay so to Abraham it says that he brought him outside and said look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them and then he said to them so shall your offspring be in other words you're going to have as many offspring as the stars in the sky you are going to be fruitful and you are going to multiply. I'm going to multiply you, is what God says to Abraham. And this promise is so powerful that the next person that it's passed on to is Hagar. So Hagar is this servant woman that that kind of disobediently Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham because she doesn't believe that she's going to have any children. And, and they have this boy Ishmael, and God says, you need to send her away. And so they do. And yet when he sends her away, God meets Hagar and the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. In other words, like this promise that God has made to Abraham is so powerful that even when God tries to, or when Abraham tries to fulfill the promise in the wrong way with the wrong person, the promise continues to her. Okay, So Ishmael is going to be fruitful and multiply. But then they do trust God. They do have a child named Isaac. And God visits Isaac and God says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he takes the promise he made to Abraham and passes it to his son Isaac. And who do you think is going to be next? Jacob, right? Isaac has a son named Jacob. And God visits Jacob in Genesis 35. God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. All right? So as far as themes go, this is a big one, right? If it shows up this many times, and this isn't even all the times it shows up. Right? There's more times in Genesis that it shows up. This is a really big theme showing up throughout the book of Genesis. And we should expect it to continue in the book of Exodus. So let's go through the Exodus chapter one in four parts. Okay. So part one, part one is going to be verses one through seven. So look again at verses one through seven. In verse 1 through 7, it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. And then it gives us the names of the leaders of each of the tribe and all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons and Joseph was already in Egypt. And here's the situation. Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. And so we see that the past sons of Jacob who promises were made to are now dead. And that might... Concern us, right? So God took pains to make this promise to Abraham and then to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob. But there's been some sort of a, 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 a kind of gap here, a silence. He doesn't keep visiting each one of these people giving this promise. And now all the people who the promises were were made to, who had an angel visit them and tell them or God speak to them, they're all dead. So what are we supposed to expect? Is God going to keep his promise? promises. Well, what does verse 7 say? Verse 7 says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, let's say hypothetically chapter 1 doesn't mention God. Is God present? Very much so, right? God is at work fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham because we see this nation of people growing and growing and growing and growing. Well, if we go to the next section, we'll see that it gets even crazier here because now the present sons are being put under great difficulty, right? So this king of Egypt doesn't know Joseph, has no regard for the Israelites, and you can tell he's getting a little bit fearful of what might happen. Why? Because there's so many of them, right? There's so many Israelites. He's starting to wonder, what happens if we get too mighty for us and join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land? And so here's the plan. We are going to oppress them. We're going to keep them down. We're going to put taskmasters over them. We're going to deal shrewdly with them. We're going to put heavy burdens on them, and we're going to enslave them. We're going to make their lives bitter with hard service. Right? Well, look at verse 12. What happens in the middle of Pharaoh oppressing the Israelites, making life hard for them? Well, verse 12 says, But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Which is just another way of saying God's still at work, right? And and we're starting to get this theme kicked up that's going to be really strong in the next couple of chapters, and that's the theme of God versus Pharaoh, right? So Pharaoh says, beat them down, make them slaves, yet God's promises continues to flourish and they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, Pharaoh's not done yet, right? So so the third movement in our story is this, that the present sons are condemned to death now. So it's not enough to to enslave them. New things have to happen to keep them down. So the king of Egypt says to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, and he tells them, basically, when a son is born, kill it. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt calls them in, says, why have you done this? And what do they do? They lie. They lie. Thank you. Yes, they lie to him, right? They lie. They say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. And how does God respond? God deals well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So you see that this, this most recent attack against the Israelites, the idea is we're going to now not just enslave them, we're going to kill all the male baby Israelites. And that is met with, the people multiplied, the people grew very strong, sounds like fruitful and multiply, right? And not only that, but these midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh, they also are multiplying and growing. Strong. They, they have their own families. So it's kind of like Israelites are just like a bunch of rabbits, right? They just There's just more and more and more of them and, and, you know, there's nothing that Pharaoh can do to stop this progress of them growing and growing and growing well you can imagine that verse 20 um that god dealt well with the lying midwives has caused some questions down throughout history right and i'm going to tell you that i don't have an answer to it right away here um but that this is this is kind of one of those ethical questions of um is it okay to lie sometimes right and you can go down all sorts of scenarios Right? I mean, you've got, I'm sure you guys, you guys, how many of you have taken an ethics class? You guys take, do they have ethics classes at your high schools? Yes. Yes. The Christian ones, yes. <laughs> do the public high schools have any sort of ethics classes or no? There's a philosophy one? Okay. Maybe it would fall under that. I don't know. Usually the question is, you know, World War II era, Nazi Germany, you're hiding Jews. Someone comes and says, Do you have any Jews hiding here? You tell the truth, all right? Um, and and you can take that scenario down all different directions. Okay. Um, well, um, I think that this is one that we should we should think about for a little bit. But I don't think it should uh, cause us too much trouble. We we need to remember that Exodus is narrative and. I actually don't have any notes on on this verse. I should never have even pointed this out. So I, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just talking here. Um, talk yes, Doug is here. <laughs> uh, so, all
2: right. So this is something that I have um, you know, dug into a bunch. And you know, what what is the right thing to do in s- situations of seemingly ethical dilemmas? And We must remember that we live in a sinful world where where sin has marred every aspect of our lives and there are genuine evil people that are doing harm to others. And so while the midwives are lying in this situation, they are trying to prevent an even greater sinful behavior, which is the murder of innocent people, right? And we'll see in other areas of the scriptures as well that, that the same kind of choice is made to not tell the truth in order to save innocent people who are certainly going to be killed. You know, we can go to Jericho, we can go to a bunch of different places. Um, and so, when we as Christians, um, you know, have to deal with these types of situations, you know, you want to put the truth, you know, telling the truth, way up high. Um, but if there is a situation where, you know, it's you and the Nazis who are at your door, you're hiding Jews you know, that the better thing to do is to save the innocent life rather than to tell the truth. So, we do get into situations of ethical dilemmas because we live in a sinful world. We, we cannot live out the laws of God perfectly because this whole world is my sin. So, that's, that's where I would go with that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I would agree with that. And I would say, um, if you're tempted to think that you're in that situation, you're probably not.
2: <laughs> All
0: right, so if it's like, Tell the truth and get an F on my assignment, or lie and get an A, you should tell the truth. Okay? Or you steal something, you know, um, take a little money out of your mom's wallet, you know, well, for the greater good, namely me, my greater good, I'm going to lie about it. That's, that does not apply to this scenario. <laughs> okay? Um, good. So that, that's helpful. Um, so, we see through this series of events that the past sons of Jacob, whose uh, promises were made to, are dead. And yet, God promises, or God is multiplying the people. The present sons are put under great difficulty, and even in the midst of that, God is multiplying the people. The present sons then are condemned to death. So, they're being killed, or they're, well, they're not being killed because the midwives aren't doing it, but they are condemned to death. And they continue to multiply. And then we get to the last Verse. Uh, The future sons are put under a death sentence. So uh, verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Okay, so um, what's going to happen? Chapter one ends there. Well, based on what we've read, what should we expect to happen? What's happened at the end of each of these points? That, uh, despite what does,
2: they don't multiply,
0: so. They're still going to multiply. They're still going to be fruitful and multiply. God is going to keep His promise to them, right? This promise that He made back to Abraham, that He's going to make them as numerous as the sky, the stars in the sky. Now, what else did God promise to Abraham? Did He just promise He was going to give him a really big family, or was there anything else attached to the promise? Maybe we should go back. Let's go back to Genesis 15. All right. So Genesis 15... um, We read, let's go ahead and start in verse four. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Talking about Ishmael. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So what did he just promise him? I brought you out of Ur to give you what? Land, to give you this land. How shall I know that I'm going to possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, what should we expect to happen after verse 22 of chapter 1? Okay, that there's they will they have yeah, price of more affliction will be afflicted for 400 years. What else should we expect? Yeah, God's promises to be fulfilled. So what does God promise here? I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Okay? So we're expecting God to show up, right? God should show up here and bring judgment and afterwards what's God going to do? He's going to bring them out with great possessions. And after he brings them out with great possessions, in verse 16, what's he going to do? They're going to come back here to Canaan, to the land that I've promised them. And then for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So they're going to come back, and on the way, they're going to beat up on the Amorites, um, which is all prophecy of what's going to happen. And notice that in the midst of God's promises being fulfilled, things get a little bit worse before they get better, don't they? Right? So in Exodus, in Egypt, things are getting worse before they're getting better. But it's getting worse in the midst of God accomplishing his promises, not forgetting his promises. You guys know that in Acts, do you guys know that Stephen is? Stephen is considered the first martyr. And and if you guys know, right before he's martyred, Stephen tells this whole story of basically like the whole Bible, the storyline of the Old Testament. And in the storyline of the Old Testament, when he gets to this part, he says, as God was fulfilling his promises, the Egyptians afflicted the Israelites. And, And so he's basically pointing out this very thing. He understood that it was in God fulfilling his promises that things got worse before they got better. And I think that's what we ought to expect to happen in Egypt. Not only did that happen in Egypt, well, it happened 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later, what happened? A king arose in the land of Israel named Herod. And King Herod commanded that all the male babies under two in the city of Bethlehem be killed. That should remind us of something. That should remind us of verse 22 in our chapter, that, that... Pharaoh did the exact same thing. (coughs) Things looked pretty bleak back then. But what came out of it? Well, what came out of it was a savior, right? One savior who is rescued out of this horrible judgment to redeem people out of their sins. And what came out of this chapter is going to be a savior. One baby who is redeemed out of the children of Israel to deliver people from Egypt. Well, for you, let's think about how this chapter might um, travel 2,000 years to you. No, not two. Six. Four, six. Somewhere in there. Four to 6,000 years to your life. How does it travel to your life? Well, I think the question we should ask ourselves is, does life look bleak for you? Whether it's things that are happening around you or things that are happening inside you, does life look bleak? Does it look dark? Does it feel like God has forgotten you? Does it feel like the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament isn't really at work anymore in your life? If that's the case, the only thing I'd encourage you with this morning is to look at what he's doing in Exodus, look what he does 2,000 years later in the city of Bethlehem, and see that, in fact, when things look bleak, God is at work. He does remember his promises, and he is about to bring great salvation. So with that that, that thought, we're going to close. I'll pray for you. I'll be finished for today. Lord, I hope that this morning just wets our appetite for the rest of the book. That verse 22, this idea that all the male babies have been condemned to death, um, leaves us anticipating and longing for a savior, a rescuer for God to hear and to see and to act on behalf of his people. And Lord, I pray that the connection to our own lives wouldn't be missed. I pray for these students as they wrestle through um, challenges with sin in their own life, challenges with family, challenges with um, going to a public school or being on um, sports teams where they are oppressed or feel like they're being put down where they struggle in their faith, they struggle with remaining um, a Christian, where they ask the question, have you forgotten me, God? Where are you? My experience with you isn't the same that I see of those in the Bible. I pray that this verse, this, this chapter would encourage them to see that, God, you have not forgotten them, that your promises are at work. You are at work, fulfilling your promises, I should say. And help them to faithfully wait upon you, the great God who has shown himself uh, time and time again to be a rescuer, to come and meet them in uh, the pain and the affliction that they experience in their lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. right.